And what you see in that fuzzy video are a group of kids in Ethiopia singing these words, We joy in Him alone, not in earthly things. Jesus is our joy and we will follow Him. Sixteen months ago, we as a church had a Compassion Weekend in which we had the opportunity to have the Compassion Experience out in the parking lot, and we had a time to sponsor children from Ethiopia and other countries in which we said we're going to commit to helping these kids grow in the gospel, come to know Jesus, be discipled, have their physical needs met, get an education, and so Compassion had invited Christy and I last week to go to Ethiopia and to Kenya to see the work that they're doing. And y'all, I was blown away. Sometimes you wonder when we give our resources towards ministries like these, are they really having an impact? And, and in many ways, the organization pulled back the curtains and said, if we are making any mistakes, tell us. And it was unbelievable to see the work of the gospel taking place through this ministry a couple of highlights I recognized that I was just blown away by. Every 3.8 minutes, someone is coming to faith in Jesus through compassion. I was just like, praise the Lord. Compassion champions the local church. We didn't see their sign anywhere, but they were continually holding up the church and holding up pastors as the champions for the gospel. And these churches are taking ownership. And there's actually a picture of a woman on the screen, I'd like for you to see. Her name is Donce. Donce is a former Muslim who has now come to faith in Jesus, and she teaches young moms how to care for their babies. In Ethiopia, one in six babies make it to adulthood. One in six. And so what she's doing is teaching them how to raise their children and to care for them. But more than that, she sees herself as an evangelist. And of the 200 moms that she has been working with, 100 of them have come to faith in Jesus. They have been baptized and are now members of the local church in which she serves. And so it was just incredible just to see God at work there, and it just brought great encouragement and affirmation that when we as a church are financially supporting these children through compassion, our dollars are truly at work. And I'll tell you, while I was there, I was homesick. I was homesick for my kids, but I was also homesick for you. This morning, I was so excited to get here that I totally forgot to brush my teeth, okay? <laughs> But thankfully, the tragedy has been avoided, okay? I made a quick stop, and I, I brushed my teeth before I could get here. But I am just so grateful to be back here and to be gathered with you. So thankful for David Johnson last week bringing the word of God and taking care of us. I'm so thankful for the teaching team God has provided for us, that the, the church and the word, the ministry of the word is not dependent upon one person. The word is preached and the gospel goes forth through so, so many, and I'm so grateful. If you're here this morning and you're new to our church, you've been having your worship got a connect card. If you wouldn't mind filling that out for us, and you can drop it in the offering basket when it's collected at the end. We also have a Westwood app in which you can fill out all of your information on the connect card. In fact, there's a place where you can register a prayer request. And what's amazing is last week as I was in the middle of the savannah of Ethiopia and parts of Kenya, I was getting your prayer requests on my phone. I was able to pray for you right then and there. So it's just an amazing resource that we have through our app that I want to invite you to utilize. You know, it's amazing in the country of India that they have perfected a monkey trap. Now, this trap is actually just a jar that is tethered to the ground. And all that's inside of it is a piece of candy. 
But when the monkeys come upon this jar with a piece of candy inside, they reach in and grab hold of this little sugary treat. And when they seek to pull it out, their fist is clenched in such a way that they cannot pull out of the jar. As hard as they try, they're unable to be set free from this trap. Now here's the trick. If all they did was let go of the candy, they would immediately be set free. But their mind is so focused on what is in their hand, they refuse to let go and they are quickly caught by the hunter. You and I hear a story like that and we're just like, you dumb monkey, let go of the candy. You can go free. You just got to let it go and your hand comes out and off you go. But you see, you and I are just like that monkey. When we get so caught up in the desires of the flesh, the sin that so eagerly entangles us, we grab hold of it with a death grip. And when we try to let go to go live our lives, we realize that we are not set free. In fact, we are entangled. But the point that Simon Peter is making in 1 Peter chapter 2 is that if we are willing to let go of the sin that so easily ensnares us, it is then that we are set free. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going through a sermon series as a church entitled Imperishable, in which we've been walking through Simon Peter's first letter. And we've been seeing all that God has done for us in the gospel. Throughout chapter 1, he has been soaking us with the grace of God and what he has done for us in Christ. We see back in chapter 1 that we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. We have been sanctified by the Spirit. We have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. That indeed we are recipients of mercy. We've been given a new birth into a, a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. We have an imperishable inheritance that is kept for us in heaven. He tells us that our salvation is guarded by God himself. We are to set our hope fully on the grace of Jesus. And as obedient children, we're not to go back to our old way of life before we knew Christ. We're to be holy as he is holy because we have been redeemed. Not with perishable things like gold or silver, but we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. We have been purified by obeying the truth of the gospel and we are now liberated to love one another. And although mankind is going to perish just like the grass of the field, we have God's word which remains forever. We see Jesus as the living stone rejected by men but has become the chief cornerstone for our faith which has now led us to a new identity that indeed we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God so that we might declare the praises of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, the first 35 verses of this letter is like drinking out of a fire hydrant of God's grace. The living water just keeps spewing off the pages of Peter's letter into our hearts and it's leaving us soaked in the grace of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So where do we go from here? 
You see, from this point forward, in chapter 2, verse 11, we see a pivot point where Simon Peter says, now let's get to the practical application of this gospel. So in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus, here is how we go and live this out. So in verses 11 and 12, notice here in the text, Peter gives us two keys to godly living. Look with me at the text with 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Simon Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Notice the first key to godly living here in the text. The first is this, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Verse 11, Peter writes, I urge you, dear friends, brothers and sisters, as strangers and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. You can hear Peter's heart for the people as he is pouring out his heart in these words of verse 11. If Peter were here today, you would hear so much, so much emotion in his voice as he calls them dear friends. Some of your translations might begin verse 11 with the word beloved. The root of this word is to love with a selfless, sacrificial love. It's as if he's saying, I love you so much. You are loved by God and you are loved by me. We're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And even though we don't look the same, we don't talk the same. In fact, as Simon Peter is writing this, we're in totally different countries. We are one in Christ. We're family. Yet before he gets to the exhortation, he reminds them once again who they are. Verse 11, he calls them strangers and exiles. You see, Peter's already called them this. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, he called them elect exiles. But once again, he's reminding them, you are not home yet. This world is not your home. As believers, we're just passing through. We are aliens in a foreign land. We are sojourners who are longing for home. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you and I must be reminded over and over that we are not Americans first. Our citizenship is of another kingdom. And y'all, we are in danger of setting our hearts and setting our identities first upon where we live and even what we possess. I heard the story last week of a pastor who went into the home of a poor African woman. Inside her home, made of mud and cow dung, he walks in and he sees this woman full of joy. And so this pastor asked this poor woman, where do you get your joy? And she said this, in America, you have God and things. All we have is God. Don't miss that. You and I are in danger of trying to find our identity or our joy or our satisfaction based upon God plus something else. You see, when you realize that God is all that you have, it is then that you find that God is all you need. For this woman, she realized, all I have is him. 
and he is enough. I don't have the things of this world, but I have Christ, and Jesus is enough. And we're in danger of believing that we need something more than God. You see, Paul, Peter is reminding these believers, don't get too comfortable. You're not home yet. You're exiles and sojourners, aliens in a foreign land. Listen, y'all, our permanent address is not in Alabama. Our permanent address is in heaven with Christ. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 3, if I, go, if I go, I will prepare a place for you. And I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You see, deny your longing to make this world your home. This is what Peter's driving home. We're strangers and exiles. Our permanent home isn't here. And yet before Peter tells them what to do, he tells them who they are. You're strangers and exiles. Don't get too comfortable. But then notice the intensity of the challenge that he brings to them. He says, verse 11, I urge you. He's saying, with all that is within me, I'm calling you to do this. Paul used this same phrase in Ephesians 4.1 when he says, I urge you as a prisoner for the Lord to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what is Peter urging these first century believers to do? Look at verse 11. Abstain. That means to stay away, to keep off. He is calling them to denial. Well, to deny what? He tells us, verse 11, sinful desires. Here, Peter is looking through the outward actions. He's looking through the Sunday morning facade. He's getting past all of the bling and the veneer and the shine, and he's going right to the heart. And he says these sinful desires, these selfish longings, these me-first feelings that are rooted deep within your heart, you're to abstain from them. You see, inside your heart and inside my heart are these sinful, fleshly desires that resist submission to Christ. And our flesh is this rebellious will that is within us that we have inherited from our forefather, Adam. When he sinned in the garden, the lust and the sinful desires have infected every living, living being like poison and even though we have been washed we have been sanctified we have been made clean by the blood of the lamb we are still living in this tent we're still living in this body that has yet to be redeemed and so we have these urges that are within us that do not reflect the character of christ have you ever known someone that has committed such an egregious sin that you ask yourself how in the world could they have done that how can someone so godly do something so ungodly? Well, Peter tells us why. They stopped abstaining from the desires of the flesh. They quit fighting. When you quit fighting against these urges, it is there that you find yourself acquiescing. You're surrendering to what these desires are leading you to do. And y'all, all of us are susceptible no one is exempt from falling into egregious sin. If you say, oh, Kenneth, I would never do that, be careful. Because what you're doing is you're revealing an area of pride in your heart. 
We must diligently, daily deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Jesus because if we don't, devastation awaits us. So, what do these passions of the flesh look like? Well, Peter has already listed some of them out for us in chapter 2, verse 1. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Even the Apostle Paul gives us a list of what these works of the flesh look like in Galatians chapter 5. He writes, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, fighting, jealousy, fits of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things just like these. You see, the sin that we commit on the outside, it begins on the inside. And isn't it interesting? He is commanding believers to turn away from the longings of their heart. Hear me today. Your heart will lie to you. Your heart says, I know what I want, and I want it now. You see, this desire to follow your heart, y'all, that's some of the worst advice anyone could ever give you. Whether it's put on a pillow or it's mentioned on a movie to follow your heart, that is terrible advice. Okay, whoever is the screenwriter for these Hallmark movies, they give horrible relationship advice. Not that I watch Hallmark movies. <laughs> Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all else. And so Peter is saying these fleshly, worldly desires, they're, they're rooted in your heart. Abstain. Walk away. Deny the passions of your flesh well why in the world is peter making such a big deal about the desires of our heart well he tells us verse 11 because they wage war against the soul this phrase wage war it means to fight like a soldier at war it implies a long-term relentless and aggressive military campaign I thought John MacArthur wrote this beautifully in which he says, the image is of an army of lustful terrorists waging an internal search and destroy mission to conquer the soul of the believer. You see, every day you and I are in danger of our hearts leading us away from Jesus. This is why we must daily remind ourselves of the gospel. That I am a sinner and I need a savior. And so when I wake up in the morning, I must turn my eyes upon Jesus and say, Oh, Jesus, would you give me the grace to say no to the desires of my heart and yes to the truth of your word. This requires diligence and consistently denying yourself. Saying, no, I'm not going to do what my, my heart is leading me to do. I'm going to obey the word of God and go the way of Christ. 17th century John Owen 17th century theologian John Owen said it like this. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's coming for you. It's waging war 
Peter says. So you got to fight back. Well, how do we do that? How do I experience victory over fleshly desires? There are many, many ways to fight that scripture gives us. Let me give you three. The first is cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. In Romans 13, 14, Paul writes, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see, the answer is the gospel. Jesus is not only the one who died to save you, he is also the one who was raised to give you victory over your flesh. The divine power that you need for life and godliness is available in Jesus Christ. Cling to Jesus and find victory over the flesh. Secondly, confess your sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you want victory over the flesh, you must confess your sin. Confess it to the Lord and confess it to other believers. James says in James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You see, one of the lies that Satan will whisper in your ear is that the battle that you have against a particular sin is that you're the only one dealing with it. He'll tell you no one else is dealing with this. You are rotten. You're horrible. How in the world could you think and do such things? He is seeking to not only lure you into temptation of self-doubt and deny the sufficiency of Jesus and what he did for you at the cross, but he's also seeking to be an accuser of you before God. So God says, here's your way out. Here is your path of freedom. Confession. Say something. Take what's in the dark and bring it into the light. You go before the Lord and say, Lord, here is my sin. I'm opening it up. I've got nothing to hide. You know it already, but I want to make sure I'm confessing everything in my heart because I don't want to hide this. But there's a second step to it. It's not only confessing to the Lord, it's confessing to other believers. You bring your sin out into the open. Now, obviously, you have to be wise in how you do this. There are certain times and people and environments in which you can share those things. You don't do it with someone of the opposite gender who's not your spouse, okay? You need to identify key people who are godly and who help you not only in declaring war against it in which they help um, help hold you accountable, but they're also gonna pray for you in this struggle. But don't you dare believe for a second that you're alone in this fight against sin. You're not alone. It's amazing how the Lord has different people throughout even this local church who are fighting different types of sins. And when I I talk to some of you, you're like, I'm the only one dealing with this. And I want to say, no, you're not. You're not alone in this struggle. There are other people. And so God says to confess your sins to one another. You see, it's when you bring your sin out of darkness into the light that you're going to find freedom. Now, here's the truth. Either you expose your sin or God will expose it for you. He refuses to let you sin successfully. He loves you so much to let you continue in a pattern and way of life that is the antithesis of his son. And so God says, no, 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 no. Bring it into the light. You don't got to be afraid. You have nothing to hide. It's the person who says, I have no sin to confess is the one you got to watch out for. 
So not only clinging to Jesus and confessing your sin, but number three, crush desire with the word of God. The word of God is the sword of the spirit in your hand to fight back against the lust of the flesh. And when sinful desires come upon you, and they will, every day for the rest of your life, don't miss that, every day for the rest of your life, these desires are going to keep coming up. You crush them with the word of God. When temptation comes your way, you wield the sword of the spirit and you fight back. So that men, when you have the desire to click on that image on the computer screen, you declare with Joseph in Genesis 39, how can I do such a thing and sin against God? You quote Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes in which I will not look lustfully at a woman. You have told me, O Lord, in Leviticus 11 and in 1 Peter 1 to be holy as you are holy, and so I am going to live a holy life beginning right now in front of my computer. You fight back with the sword of the Spirit. You fight with the Word of God. You can't fight back with what you don't know. This is why you've got to know this book, y'all. This is why this word must be the meditation of our hearts because your soul is at stake and the way that you declare a victory is by wielding what God has given to you in his word. So when temptation comes, you crush it with the word and you fight until you take your last breath. Let me encourage you. There's coming a day in which the fight's over. There's coming a day in which you're not fighting the flesh anymore. And y'all, I long for that day. And that day will take place either when you take your last breath or when Jesus returns. Whichever happens first, that is when your fight with the flesh will be over. But until that day, until that day, deny yourself and follow Jesus. Well, the second key to godly living we see in the text, verse 12, is to display godliness. Peter writes, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. In verse 11, Peter gives the negative, okay, he says, uh, you know, uh, abstain from the desires of the flesh. Now in verse 12, Peter gives the positive, conduct yourselves honorably. The word honorably means to have beautiful character. Our lives are to display nobility. So when unbelievers, when Gentiles look at us, they might see Jesus. The character of Christ being reproduced within us. And our godly living is a means of shutting their mouths. So that when, not if, verse 12, when they lob false accusations against us, our godly conduct is means of shutting them up. Now think of how difficult this was for these first century believers that Peter's writing to. Under Roman persecution, they were accused of incest, cannibalism, and atheism because they did not worship idols. They opposed slavery, and they believed that there was a king greater than Caesar, you can imagine that first century Romans mocked them for being on the wrong side of history. An accusation you and I are facing right now when it comes to the homosexual agenda. We're on the wrong side of history. It's been said against us before. 
insults were, were hurled upon them by the world. And so Peter is calling them to display godliness as the means to which Gentiles are left speechless. Unbelievers are looking for an opportunity not to believe the gospel. And so Peter is saying, don't give them one. Don't give them a way out. The way that you win people to Jesus is by displaying godly living. Well, Kenneth, how do I respond when someone slanders me, when someone lies about me as a believer? Well, Peter's implication here is that your life, if it is exemplary of Christ, you you make those false accusations look false. So when someone says something about someone you know who's a godly man, a godly woman, you can quickly say, I know that ain't true. Their life has already discredited the words that you're saying. And Peter's saying, as these unbelievers, as these Gentiles are saying words against you, you're able to shut their mouths by the way that you live. There's no way that can be said of this person because I know their character. I know their godly conduct. But then it's not only the way that we live our life, it is our good works. When we live a godly life, they're going to see our good works and give glory to God. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, we don't do good works for the praise of man. We do it for the praise of God. Because what happens is as you start living out the gospel, as you're living a life of integrity, as you're doing good works in the eyes of unbelievers, that is going to be a catalyst to bring them to faith in Jesus. Tracy was a single mom in Kentucky who was struggling to make ends meet. And she didn't know the Lord, but one of her friends loved Jesus. And she saw her friend go through just a very difficult trial in her life. And yet her friend loved the Lord, continued to have a a life of joy, and continued to live for Christ. Well, eventually Tracy came to the end of her rope with her miserable existence, and she looked at her friend and said, I have to have this Jesus. And I had the joy of seeing Tracy baptized and then live out a godly life in front of others. You see, your godly living is a form of evangelism. The way that you conduct yourself is a way of reaching people for Jesus. Now we know Romans 10, we've got to open our mouths and tell people about Christ. But if you and I are not living transparent, authentic, godly lives, it becomes a stumbling block to people coming to Christ. Because if you and I decide, I'm going to conduct, I'm going to display godliness in my life that points to Jesus, that becomes a way of not only winning people to Christ, but on that day of visitation, on the day when Jesus comes back, Those who did not know Jesus but came to Christ through our lives will give glory to God. They will magnify, they will lift up Christ because against persecution, we as God's people decided to demonstrate and display the glory of Jesus Christ with our lives. 
And that is how we march forward in victory. Trust, faith, denying ourselves, and displaying the character of Jesus Christ. Thank you.